podcast again. Welcome to the USU Beef Educators Podcast. Today, we've got Dr. Ryan Larson, Dr. Matt Garcia, and myself, Dr. Thacker. Um, the topic we chose today is to talk about um, price and weather factors on the beef production system. So why don't we have Dr. Larson kick that off for us to start identifying some of the price variability that affects beef production systems. Yeah, when we talk about price fluctuations in cattle, we've seen some tremendous movements in cattle prices just in the past few months. And, and we can really point to one factor that's driving that. You know, and it's been this pandemic that's really driven uh, prices. And what's interesting about that is we really haven't seen major changes in, in supply of cattle, right? We saw a market response to uh, supply disruption. And we saw that just that wave trickle down to to the producers. And the big argument you hear a lot from producers is that when you go to the grocery store and you see the price that consumers are paying for beef, and then producers saying, "Why why am I not seeing that mm-hmm. uh, that same price?" And that's always the argument, right? And that that can come down to a lot of different factors. But you know, we think about the way that the meat industry has transformed and and really. Uh, integrated into just a few key large companies and uh, slaughterhouses, right? They have the control. They really hold a lot of those cards in their hands. And so uh, as mad as we want to get, that really, they, they still hold a lot of that control. So a little bit aside from that, so what's caused that kind of concentration of you know, to where we're down to a you know a dozen kill plants in the entire country. What's what's caused that? Are there benefits? And I mean, there's there's never a simple, clean cut answer. Are there benefits and you know minuses to that whole approach? Yeah, when you think about some of the benefits, number one is economics. You can you can we like cheap food, and and that's the cheapest way we can fill grocery stores full of beef is with these large right. They they're vertically integrated. They their, their economies of scale is so, I mean, they can just do it so much cheaper than if we had small. And that's why we don't see very many small operations anymore. I mean, you think about the number that, that you see around locally, not very many. I mean, I'm probably counting on one hand. Just to, I mean, they're just, just because it's so hard to compete, uh, they have to sell for more, more money and we've become pretty price sensitive as consumers that we want, we want our food as cheap as possible. So it's kind of the box store story, then what you're telling me is to get volume discounts, so to speak, the, the slaughter plants have moved to these very large facilities where they can operate on a, a thinner margin. Yeah, and we've seen that. I think swine is one of them. I mean, in the swine industry, it's, it's probably even more pronounced than beef. Um, poultry, it's just, it's the way that the protein industry has transformed. And, and we've seen a lot of agriculture, right? We've seen agriculture, the size of agriculture operations grow, you know, just as, as, a, as a natural reaction to markets, risk, whatever that may be. But, but we really see it in the protein industry that that, that size has really changed. Well, on the, on the small scale too, even some of these local, local packers, you, you, I think a lot of people don't understand that they're not necessarily packing uh, domestic protein all year long. 
you know, they're also shutting down for a good part of the year to, to, to do wildlife. You know, deer, elk, and especially here in the western states, you know, they're, they're, there's months where that, that is their focus. So if you were to just rely on those alone, you know, there, there would definitely be more of a shortage in what we, I guess what I would call domestic protein. Well, and I, I think kind of coming back, that's a really good point, Matt, but coming back, so the downside is, is we just have a few packing plants. So during a <laughs> pandemic where we see, you know, even one of those packing plants go down due to, you know, workers showing up with COVID, then it creates a situation where we cause this interruption in our protein supply. Is that basically in a nutshell what you're talking about? Right. And, and you think about this event, I'm sure when, when we talked about risk factors in the beef supply chain, I don't know if a pandemic was often, right? <laughs> we can point back to the mad cow disease. That's what I was thinking, the mad cow would be the closest Yeah, thing. we can talk about animal-related diseases that really scared us and, and, and have history of disruption, but a human-based pandemic like this, we didn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't on our radar. And so we often think about these black swan events that, that, that occur. Uh, you know, this is, this is truly a black swan event that, we, it was just not on our risk radar as, as causing this much disruption. So that, I mean, the argument is then that's led to the disparity between the price in the store and the price that the producers are being paid. Right. Yeah. And, and from, from a packer's perspective, right, you have increased costs, right, of, of keeping those doors open. Um, and in, in addition, uh, you know, you talk to a lot of these smaller, maintaining that USDA uh, certification is an expensive process and so that's uh, you know keeping up with these food safety regulations has driven not not in a bad way but that's it, it just increases your cost of production and, and affects the economics of of you know of producing that meat yeah I think another fact like you're saying with uh, the human pandemic side of things one of the things that we're, we're not really factoring in, in a lot of these packers too is they're having to cease production during the day a lot of times to sanitize and get that second shift in and those shifts are smaller and so i mean they're not operating it anywhere close to probably 50 percent of capacity but they're also having to slow down that increased costs of sanitation and other things associated with what they're doing so i mean that's that's kind of probably being folded into those meat prices as well and from the consumer's perspective, right, there's such a, there was a, a rush on a run oh, on yeah. meat, right? I mean, and so you think from a demand perspective, that demand changed overnight, the demand for beef changed, but that supply side, right? On, if I'm a cow-calf producer, my supply hasn't changed. Right. And so the supply was still strong, but that demand just pulled that beef so fast because consumers were buying, buying as much as possible. Yeah, so th I think this, I mean, could this be described as being indicative of the ag markets in general in terms of you see commodity prices rise and fall in the grocery store and that doesn't often, the market signals don't often reach the ground? Is that, or is that? Uh, you know, this is such a unique situation, right? I, I don't, I mean, it, do we go back to normal? I don't know, right? What, what is normal? I don't think we'll, <laughs> but... But I think this has illustrated that the, the ag markets are highly susceptible to consumer consumer demand, consumer behavior, consumer issues, right? That that's that's gonna trickle down. I mean, but have we seen something like this before? Because if you think about it, the other things that have interrupted our industry, drought, animal disease, we've never seen, or at least I, I don't think we've seen this type of response. 
to where we have our raw supply, you know, very, very plentiful, but that final product unable to hit the stores. You know, because I don't think we've seen that, and I don't think we've seen the market response the same. So what I'm saying is, like, when there was that big drought in Texas, we didn't see the general public go run out and stock freezers full of beef or pork or poultry. So, I mean, this is a totally different response than I think any, like you said, than any of us could have ever predicted. And I think it truly has, in, in my opinion, it's changed the way we view risk in some of these situations because take the mad cow disease, right? That really impacted exports and, and had an impact there. But like you said, the consumer, I don't think the consumer really was was impacted, right? The consumer, there was no run on beef. I, they may, it may have cost a little more, but I, or, or. I mean, I had to call people not buy beef, but I mean, it wasn't at this scale. No, and so I think you're exactly right, Matt, that this is a situation that has really changed the way we view risk. Right. And, and the implications of it. Take the milk market, right? I mean, milk, uh, the future price for milk went down to $10 in just a matter of weeks. It's now above $20. I mean, when have you seen a fluctuation in futures prices of $10 in just a matter of weeks? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it wasn't, there was no, and it was all driven by by market speculation, by, by consumer concerns, whatever that may be. But it, this is this has truly opened our eyes on, on what is risk. Well, I've wondered what, you know, in, in my lifetime, certainly, and I think even in my parents' lifetime, we've never, you know, on, on the backside of World War II, we don't know what a food shortage looks like in the United States as a whole. And so this was the first time I think any of us had even experienced a situation you know, I walked in the grocery store at one point and saw I could only buy one package of steak per family at a time. I thought, man, what is, what is the world coming to? Um, but it certainly exposed some of the weaknesses in our supply chain. And I think that's, so I wondered on the, on the back end whether this will actually lead to any sort of meaningful change in the way that supply chain structured to insulate us from some of these risks or whether it will remain, you know, largely unchanged. You know, when you say weakness, I, that's... You kind of have to take that with a grain of salt because, I mean, there's there's beef back on the shelves, yeah. right? That supply chain reacted quickly to a to a issue, so you know it's it's tough, right? I mean, it it is it is weak in a sense, right? That it's so concentrated, but at the same time, it's very resilient, right? I mean, <coughs> plants plants they were they were starting up as soon as they could and and. Beef is a little more expensive in the store now, but it's there. Uh, that's and, a good point. And so uh, it's, I think as we as outside participants in the protein, we have to be careful when we say, oh, the beef supply chain is so weak. Yeah. I think we saw a lot of weaknesses in, in different areas, but I mean, this was this was a risk that I'm sure they never projected would have this impact on their supply chain. Well, I mean, and I liked what you said too, in terms of managing risk, this kind of taught us that we need, to, we need to kind of expand our view of what risk is in our industry. I think we've been talking about for years, you know, disaster planning. We need to plan for, for drought. We need to plan for disease. We need to plan for fire. We need to plan for all these things. But I think maybe, 
you know, maybe our, our view of what was actually our, what, what, what the risks were to our industry were, were somewhat narrow-sided. We, we, we didn't anticipate this and, you know, we, we got hit with it. But like you said, we're, we're resilient. But I think this going forward, this shows us that we need to have a little so, bit broader view of what can contaminate or what can damage our industry. So the resilience thing is something I find really interesting to hear. You know, brought up this conversation because from an ecological perspective in you know rangeland systems again we have all these threats that you're constantly looking at you know of natural disturbances and even human induced um, disturbances and so the kind of the science of management has really evolved from this you know kind of a Clemencian view which was everything moved to this ideal plant community and everything was rainbows and puppies right it was ideal <laughs> And then we realized, well, not all the landscape can look like that, nor will it ever look like that. So we've kind of transitioned or evolved in where a lot of land management now is built around how do we make sure that those systems are resilient to disturbances, recognizing we can't control or limit. You know, fire is a good example. For almost a century, our whole focus has been on just not allowing any forests or rangeland to burn, which was short-sighted and we now realize was not realistic. But now instead of worrying about putting them out, we talk about well, how do we build these ecological systems into something that's more resilient so that they can recover from disturbance. And so is that a way we should start looking about our beef production systems instead of how do I avoid these risks? Because they're unavoidable, right? You can't, I look at what a, a beef producer has to, to kind of balance. They've got market risks, they've got weather risks, none of which they control, right? right? And so instead of worrying about how do we avoid those risks, maybe the conversation needs to change into how do we create a resilient system, as Dr. Larson just talked about with the supply chain, how do we create a resilient system that recovers quickly from these disturbances rather than you know, a really bad drought setting us back for five years or 10 years, depending on, you know, so is that kind of a direction we might want to start changing the way we think about risk in these, you know, in modern times? I think that's a great point. I, I, I think that's, my opinion, that's spot on, right? When you think about operations, multi-generational operations that have weathered, it's, they're resilient, right? They can, they can weather this. And, and the thing about risk, right? I think sometimes uh, you brought up a good point. If there was no risk, there's no return, right? That's the bottom line. So if we want a return, we have to take on some risk. And, and another way to look at that, risk often leads to opportunity. So uh, it's not that we can, if if we say we're de-risking or getting rid of all the risk, that's that's a fallacy that just can't exist, right? But we what we have to do is look at those risks and say, how do we make our operation as resilient as possible against those risks, right? But but how often, and I think I'm guilty of this, if we talked about, you know, talked to producers or heard from producers, I want to eliminate the risk associated with my operation. And I always, you know, I always chuckled because I thought, well, it, there's always risk associated, right? It's, it's inherent in living in a highly variable climate. And well, and no matter where you go in the world, there's inherent risks with a beef production system or, or any agriculture production system. And so, uh, you know, it makes me wonder if we shouldn't try to help. Um, well, I think it goes back to what we've always talked about too. It's, I think a lot of the time, when we get when we get really damaged as an industry, it's because we're being reactive to that risk. We're allowing that risk to happen, and then we're trying to manage through that, rather than being proactive and kind of doing what you're talking about. 
planning on managing for that risk regardless. You know, kind of that holistic approach again of, you know, I know this is going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen this year. I know it's going to happen at some point, but I'm going to manage so that when this risk does rear its head or this this event does rear its head, I am adaptable, I am flexible, I am able to to be resilient through that that time period so that when it ends, I, I'm, I'm even more productive when, when this when this danger to my operation ceases. But I think, once again, I think the problem is, you know, one, I'm not saying we were, we weren't proactive in the COVID thing, but we, we, we had to react. And what we're seeing well, right nobody now saw is, that coming. yeah, no one did, but that, that's reactive marketing, uh, yeah. reactive management at this point. Yeah, I guarantee when those companies were having their strategic management meetings last fall or early winter, right? <laughs> Human pandemic wasn't yeah. on the list. You know, as they talk about some of the key risks, I, I think, you know, they, I don't think this was one of the, yeah, I, but I think Matt's exactly right. It teaches us that if we can be proactive and as a producer, right? I mean, that's, it's, I, we say that it's easy to say hard to do, but to be proactive and to think about those risks ahead. And, and this is Tosh, right? We have to be forward thinking in some of the risks that we face. But but I think, uh, Eric, I think we ought to use the term mitigate versus eliminate, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, we, we can't eliminate the risk. We There's just, we can't, but we can mitigate. We have ways to mitigate those risks, both from the range side, the animal health, and the finance, the economic side. So, Ryan, what are, what are some of the... Um, you know, our topic today was, you know, price and weather. So what are, what are some of the pricing or the market risks that the producers face? And, and how do you see those coming or how do you at least identify with those? Or what types of things should you be thinking about and planning for? So I think you, you start with weather, right? And in the beef industry, weather is a big driver. One, uh, it impacts feed availability. Weather impacts the price of corn in the Midwest, and you know the health of the animal. You know, weather weather's weather's a big driver. It's not the only one, but weather's a weather's a big one. And and as we've seen in Utah, we have just currently we have totally different weather patterns that are affecting different parts of the state. So so weather's a driver. Um, we look at. Uh, price cycles in the cattle cycle there's always a you know cattle industry is amazing just because you see the cattle cycles and you kind of see herd reduction herd expansion right and and we're starting to see those herd reductions take place so you can kind of you know we have those high prices and that's really drove herd expansion then we had the lower prices driving herd you know reduction and so you know following those those cattle cycles will drive those prices and i think consumers Right, demand the demand side, um, export markets. We've seen, you know, one of the, the the implications or you know some of the on the on the side of this pandemic is our trade relationships. You know, we've we've uh, you know uh, China. They're still going back and forth on the China ag deal. Mexico and Canada. What, what what's going to happen with the beef trade with Mexico and Canada? Right. There's there's all this, uh, you know, we've, we've been focused so much on, on what's going on with the pandemic. But on the side, there's all these trade issues that really are big drivers for for uh, for cattle prices. Matt, um, value added programs. I mean, I think that's something we talk about a lot. I mean, what's your thoughts on 
Do those influence prices? I mean, they, they do, but I mean, just like we've been talking about today, there's so many variables of what's going to influence that price. You know, we, we were talking a little bit earlier, but like the value added programs, I think, you know, th- those are programs where if the market's good and it's nice and healthy and there is a group that sees a high degree of value on that, you know, producers can, can enter those value added programs, implement in those in their herds and the premium, you know, should outweigh the, the, the cost of implementation. Where you run into a problem is if you've implemented that value added program, let's say the market goes the wrong way for whatever direction, yeah, you, you're still gonna get a premium, but is that premium gonna cover the cost of implementation of that program? So that's one thing that we, we've seen a lot. And you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, about 10 years ago, the EID tag, you know, electronic identification. It cost you $5 to put that tag in, and you got a $50 premium on that animal if they're in the feedlot. You know, about, I think it was about four years after that, the tags cost you $8, and it was you were getting a $10 premium per animal in the feedlot. Now, everyone goes, well, you're still getting a $2 premium, but it goes back to what we're talking about. There's all these variables of cost. How much did it cost you to bring your labor in, to bring those cattle up, put those tags in, you know, do all these things to get those cattle ready? Are you actually receiving that premium? You know, so that's one thing we need to, you know, we need to be kind of aware of also is, yeah, value-added programs are great. You know, they, they keep our animals, they tend to produce a, a better animal on the back end, but that producer still needs to realize, you know, the, that, 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 or recoup that initial cost of investment on those animals. Now, in terms of kind of these external forces and all these other variables, we were talking a little bit about with Eric about this earlier, you know, you can have all these great market options here and, you know, value-added programs, but your limiting factor is always always your land, your range, your forage. So if you're having to pull off early, you know, and you're delivering an animal that you, you implemented that value-added program to, but the market isn't any good, it might, it might cost you a significantly amount more to implement that value-added program because your range, once again, is your limiting factor. So, I mean, that, that's one of the variables we need to be aware of. And we need to be aware of, I think, because we keep talking about being proactive. You know, there's so many variables, and, you know, Ryan probably knows more about this than I do, but, you know, there, there are so many variables that are going to influence the value or the price of that calf, you know, when we go to sell, so. Okay, so we've just established that this whole thing is incredibly complex. <laughs> there's thousands of variables. You know, producers... <clears throat> Well, it makes my head spin. I can't imagine a producer that's actually relying on this to make a living. So how do you sort through all of that <laughs> and, and actually manage, you know, or, or manage your production system in a way that, that you can be resilient? I, I mean, there's like 10,000 factors. So you can't possibly track all of those simultaneously to inform your decision making. Or can you? I, I guess that should be formed as a question. Well, I, you know... This is, I've sat through so many, you know, I worked in the Midwest, so we're always, you know, we give outlook on corn, soybeans, wheat, right? And as I sat through these presentations, I do the same here, is I think, how much influence does a producer have on prices, mm-hmm. right? And so I always come back to, as a producer, what can you control, right? That, that'd be my first question. 
what what truly can you influence on your operation? You know, prices. I mean, you can you can lock in. You can use futures, options, hedging, right? You can you can mitigate some of that price risk, but you can't control market price. Markets are gonna uh, markets are gonna work based on global factors. I mean, it's but but then when you start boiling that down to what you can control. You know, I, I come back to your cost of production, and I think people hate me for it. But <laughs> I was like, "Oh, here he goes talking about cost of production." But but you think about that cost of production. That's really driving that break-even price. That's driving, and and really, you that's what you can't control is that cost of production. That's that's what you have control over. And so I think, you know, when you talk about from an and this just from an economist perspective, I think that's that would be my starting point is saying. Let's let me analyze my cost of production. Where can I make tweaks in that cost of production? Well, I think also if you, a, a great example of that is what was it, 2012 with that Texas drought. You know, Texas, you know, bottomed out. Those guys were really taking whatever they could for their cattle. But everybody around the, the rest of the country was saying, okay, after that kind of played out and we had that decrease in supply, we keep talking about being proactive. A lot of these guys were reactive to the market. They started picking up some of those thin cattle, putting cheap weight on them you know, on range or whatever, and turn around selling those cattle for a ridiculous premium because it was needed in the market. So, you know, I've just been sitting here talking about being proactive, 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 but that was an instance where they were reactive to the market in a positive way. But but I think that, I think they, they were in a position, they had put themselves in a financial position where they could capitalize on that opportunity, right? I think... I think that's being reactive in a good way, right? Where you, where you are able to expand and change your operation because you are are both have the management capability and the financial capability to do something like that. Right. So I think I think that's I think that's being proactive to take advantage of an opportunity. And I think those guys are also very they took advantage of that opportunity to maybe market cattle a little differently, some cattle that they might have been price takers on or price you know, and previously they were able to say okay this isn't this is something that in a, in a normal market I would have to put more investment in I may have to keep a little bit longer and they said no I'm moving it the premiums there I'm gonna react to this market and they they were selling cattle for premiums that were unheard of at that point yeah yeah so it's, so what you're really saying then is your operating costs are the least <laughs> common denominator. I kind of keep coming back because I, you know, what what do we actually tell a producer, you know, in this incredibly complex global market with all these risks that they can't mitigate or influence? Does it really all just boil down to their their operating costs? Is that so? My colleague Ruby Ward and I we've had this discussion many times talking about it all boils down to the profit equation, right? Price times quantity minus variable costs and fixed costs, right? So you can either increase your price, which we say you have very little control over, increase your quantity or the, the, the pounds, right? So sell, a, increase yield or whatever you want to call it, or you change your variable cost, right? You look at it, you can boil that down to just a few simple variables that really will affect your profitability. And so when you look at it that way, right? Increase yield or decrease costs, I mean, it's pretty simple. So, Dr. Garcia, what are what are the problems with um, how easy is it to just 
decide you're going to increase production in a beef production system. I mean, you know, it's not like you can just go till up another 25 acres on the back 40 and then plant a little extra, right? Like, how, how do you, what does that look like? Because there's a cost associated with that, but it's not just cost because then there's constraints on time and other right. factors. So what, what do you, what does that look like? Well, that's, that's a great question because, you know, that that's something that I think we've all kind of gone around on just because it's, we talk about this this variability and this fluctuation in our production systems and you know availability of resources and you know the abil- the ability to just increase production in beef you know typically what we're talking about is you kind of have this base herd that you're always producing calves or product off of and then you want to increase you, you got to have a couple factors there you got to have the forest to to handle that increase you got to have the finances to go out and purchase those types of cows or steers or stalkers or heifers that you're gonna incorporate into your system to, to increase the production. You know, you gotta understand that, like we've talked about in one of our previous podcasts, if you're bringing in that young cow, she's gotta be there for a number of years to pay for herself. So for me, you know, looking at that, I'm gonna increase beef production this year. I'm gonna go buy a bunch of bred cows and heifers. The problem with that is you better hope that next couple of years you're able to maintain those cows and heifers because if, if you get that one calf and that next year you go into a, a production drought or a drought system or there's a market collapse, that, that cow isn't going to recoup the cost of that, that purchase price. So you've increased production, but have you, have you made yourself, and I know Ryan hates this word, but have you made yourself more sustainable by doing so? Well, well. And have you have you have you damaged your your land by increasing those animal units well, to the point and, where and we can have a conversation about the forage base, right? And, and we'll get to that. But I think coming back though, simply adding a new animal to your herd does that always increase your beef? You know, pounds of beef produced. Because what are the complications with that? How well, long does it take that cow to learn your system? How long right. does she maintain a pregnancy and raise a calf? Yeah, like how, does she get pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you manage that? How do you, you 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 do a lot of, of praying <laughs> and hoping for the best. Well, but is there a way you can make so say you know markets are such that you decide I can increase my beef production? Mm-hmm. You know how would you how would you go about managing your risk with bringing in those new animals? How how would you think about bringing in new animals? Well, see, what I, are your options? Well, I think I think usually that that's just it. You you hit it on the head right there. What are your options? Usually when you're bringing cattle in. You're bringing cattle in from someone else's system, you know, and there's there's a reason why those cattle's are those those cows are being moved out of that system. You know, a lot of times in the in the perfect storm, a lot of those those animals that are that other producers want to sell to you to increase your beef production are animals that either are not good enough to be in their system, or they're animals that they're having to get rid of because their system can't handle it. So the risk associated with that is, is you're bringing in animals that, what you just said, aren't going to learn your system for a couple of years or might fall out of the system rather quickly. Now, to kind of mitigate that risk, usually what, what I tell producers when they're trying to expand, you know, herds is, you know, if you're going to if you're going to bring bring in heifers or cows from another system, you know, learn something about that system. 
you know, are they are they managing similarly? Are the resources similar? Are they maintaining those animals during those times of, of lean resources the same way that you would maintain animals? You know, what did they breed those animals to if you're buying bred, bred animals? You know, because that, an, that, that calf is going to have to be adaptable to your system as well. So if you're going to look to expand or increase your beef production, obviously you're, you're going to want to go out and be bringing in animals from a similar production environment is what, what you're going to expect them to perform in. So, so trying to match your replacements with your system based on right. where they came from. And it's tough because you're bringing them in from a, from a totally different system. So this isn't as simple as just no, jumping it's, on the it's not web, a plug and play. internet auction and <laughs> buying some nice black cows. I bought 40 cows from Tennessee and I'm going to throw them in on the Arizona Strip. I mean, yeah, you're, they, they'll, they'll probably calf for you. Once. They're probably going to be gone that next year, but... <laughs> So, and Ryan, I know we've talked a lot about, you know, how many years does it, it take to really pay off adding a new cow to your herd? Like, what, what does that look like? Well, you think about that, that cow, and you think of that cow as an asset that you want to generate revenue on a yearly basis, right? And so you purchase that as an investment, then your return on that investment is that calf crop. And so, Matt, what have we said? Five years is, is about yeah. typical for, you know, to pay off a cow. And so, uh, you throw in a, a year without a calf, you throw in health. I mean, that, that changes that, that payoff dramatically. Well, I think also people look at that and they go, okay, I bought this, this bread cow for 2000 bucks. I got to make $2,000 back. Well, they forget that cow has, I don't even know what, a yearly maintenance cost. Yeah. So that, that first calf she sells, let's say she, she weans a 600 pound calf at a buck 20 or whatever. So you're looking at about $720 price right there. You're still, what, 1300 bucks in the hole for the purchase price. Plus let's say she has a $400 a year maintenance cost. So you're, you're, you're probably looking at more than five years on that cow, right? Yeah, five's probably a minimum, right? <laughs> if you develop it yourself. Five's the best case scenario. Yeah. And so your incentive from a economics, from a profitability standpoint, return on asset standpoint, is to keep that cow as healthy and producing well past that five years. Uh, am I correct in saying yeah. that, Matt? Well, I think also there, there's another factor that plays in, like when we're talking about the Texas drought. If you can pick up those animals, you know, let's say you're, you're buying bred cows at that point because it's just liquidation. You're buying them for $700 and you have the forage and you're not in a drought and you have your cost of production on that cow is down at $250, $300 a year. You know, at that point, you know, expansion kind of makes sense. You're, you're seizing that opportunity and you're able to realize or cover that cost of purchase, maintenance and still remain profitable. I think we're getting in trouble as we say, okay, I'm in the good year here. I'm going to... I have fours down, you know, I have the ability to maintain this, but we don't look at the market on those cows. So, well, you know, all bred cows are selling for $1,500, $2,000 piece. You know, how long is it gonna take me to recoup that? And how many, how many good years am I gonna have, you know, to maintain that cow? Yeah. You know, if I hit drought, I run into what Ryan's talking about. You know, I, I might not have a calf. I still gotta pay the maintenance on that cow. Still have to cover the purchase price. So, Matt, that brings another question to my mind. How long can you expect a cow to remain profitable in your system? You're telling me it takes five years to bring mm-hmm. her into to really being profitable, kind of paid her off. Right. So, I mean, how many years beyond that five can you realistically plan on her 
Oh, giving you a return. I think if you're looking at most of it, and probably playing, playing the average, I mean, you can have cows remain productive into their 20s. Now, that, that is a small percentage of cows. But typically, you know, in my mind, I think if, if you can get that cow and keep her in your system and keep her profitable, and the key is have her producing a calf that is still on the upper level of your herd average, you know, for five years past that, I think you're doing probably pretty good. You know, once you get past that, that 10, 12-year-old age, you start running into some other issues in terms of, of teeth and, you know, udders and eyes and different things that are environmentally going to cause that cow to probably be cold. She'll still remain productive, but the productivity of her calf starts dropping. Okay, so <clears throat> the, other, the other part of this question, then, is we've talked about these highly variable systems. We've talked about that multiple times across our podcast and trying to manage you know, in the face of all this risk and diversity. So it sounds like simply bringing a cow in has its own associated risks in terms of actually paying that out. Oh, yeah. So what other options are there if you see an opportunity to increase production in your system because of, you know, maybe you've had a couple of years back-to-back of above annual precip, and so you're looking at extra forage on your ranch. Right. How, how do you capture that, or, or should you see it as, as extra? I think there's a couple ways, and we talked about this, and, you know, the thing, and, I, and I've heard Ryan talk about this before, is, you know, the turnaround on profit in beef is, is kind of slow. <laughs> I mean, we're having a calf every every year, but we're not selling that calf when it's born. You know, we got a minimum of typically 18 months before we even sell that calf. You know, so to kind of take advantage of that, I think there's a couple ways. Maybe you're keeping more of your own heifers back from that system to develop and kind of incorporate into your system. So you have you know, that young, good genetics adaptable to your system to incorporate. Maybe you're keeping some of your yearlings over. You know, you're selling, you're almost running it kind of almost as a stalker. You're, you're putting some of that cheap forage into those calves. You're not maintaining them heavy on the hay, and then you're selling them later on. So I think there's a number of ways to kind of do that. You know, we could even get into, you know, taking some of those calves that whether your your heavies, your lights don't make make trailer and marketing them with your excess forage through some of these niche markets and, you know, try to receive a premium on those, you know. But, I mean, there's a number of ways. and It kind of goes back to kind of looking at that market as a whole and, you know, what your opportunities are and what you can kind of seize. Those... Those niche markets, right? I sometimes I like. Because <laughs> really, when you go into a niche market, you're you're breaking off from perfect competition, and you become a price maker. And there's there's risks associated with that as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's not a slam dunk deal when you start saying, "Oh, I got these perfect," uh, you know, these these highly specialized uh, cows that are, are, you know, whatever they may be, but there's risks associated with that as, as forces, just, just like any market, there's external forces that could drive that. When we're in, if, if we dive into a recession and, and incomes drop, you know, people, consumers aren't wanting to buy right. highly specialized beef. Well, you're also having to identify your consumers yourself, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. You have to become the marketer, right? You right. are the middle, you are the broker, you are the, the marketer, you are, you're everything. And so there's there's risks associated with that that the, the producers have to be aware of that when you break into that, you better be aware of those risks as well. There's, like I said earlier, that's it's not without risk. Right. 
Because, you know, Eric, when we talk about risk and return, right, in, in finance, there's this risk-return relationship, right? The higher the risk, the higher the return, but also, right, there's high risk. And, and with these specialty products, there's high returns, which implies there's high risk. So you have to be aware of that, uh, at all aspects of that, that marketing, that cow. So the other thing that <clears throat> every time this conversation comes up, that I find interesting is most of our operations here in the Intermountain West are, are, are reliant largely on their, their, their range operation, right? Even though they might spend four or five months in a pasture eating hay, they, they need those animals off the hay fields to produce the hay to feed through the winter. So that, that range portion of their operation is the, is the key component. As you've pointed out, that's what makes Intermountain Ranches competitive is they have this cheap um, food source, but <clears throat> I think we often think about rangelands as this um, constant supply of forage, <laughs> and so we talk about you know because where I immediately go thinking about okay so we've had a good year I find some cheap you know cow calf pears that I can purchase you know cheap because of drought in Texas or wherever so I buy an extra fifty head. And in that given year, I may have enough forage to support that 50 head. But the one thing I've learned about the West is we can swing from a really good year to a pretty poor year, you know, in nine months. And in fact, what we're experiencing now, last year, 2019, was a relatively good year. You know, for the most part, everybody had good rain last year. Here we come coasting into 2020 on top of pandemics and everything else. And you know, there's a good chunk of the state that's in quite a bit of drought. So I guess the question I always come back to is, do you really have the extra forage? Or, or, or when do you actually have extra forage? Because in that highly variable nature of your forage production, it's really hard to say, I'm confident I'm gonna have extra forage for five years to actually pay that cow exactly. off. And so, <clears throat> you know, and they, they identified this clear back into the 50s in saying, this is where we want, you know, a little bit more of a moderate stocking. You know, that, that gives us some resilience in our system to where the bad years, that extra feed, instead of trying to capture it this year, we'll, we'll let it set. And, you know, but I think often we look at that as extra feed and I'm, I'm not sure we should l always look at it as as extra feed. Well, I think from, like, like you said, you, you have a great year, you go buy those 50 cow-calf pairs and then the next year hits and you hit a drought. What are you doing with those fifty cow calf pairs? Now, now, now you got a you got a hundred individuals. If you haven't marketed those calves, that you either got to maintain or liquidate. And I guarantee you, if it's a drought year and you're liquidating those those fifty cows that you put, you're, you're probably not getting the your purchase price back on those. Well, in 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 terms of you know just thinking of it from a harvest perspective, because in reality, all that are all that cows do is harvest the forage. In reality, the the gas the grass crop is is what we're harvesting. That's the base of the operation. Um, it that highly variable nature is what creates the. The cows take that horrible forage and make a good product. That's they, how I like to look at it, <laughs> rather than just being the, the forager or the harvesters. That the harvesters. Are. Well, they're more than harvesters, I guess. <laughs> Call them mini beef plants. Then there you go. Is that better? High conversion rates. But you know, it's, so I think it's a, it's something that has some subtle differences. Is there's been a push for more flexibility, more adaptive management 
on these rangeland systems, which I would agree we should be, you know, annually evaluating or do I have too many or not enough cows in an individual year? The hard part is how do we actually implement that with a long-term investment, right? With a short-term window. Well, here, so. here's my question on those those yearly evaluations. A lot of times, and we've seen this happen a lot, we'll have a, a real wet winter, we get that, that melt off, and, and that initial evaluation is going to look great, right? We got a lot of forage on the ground. Let's say we dry out. And let's say based on that initial evaluation, we're going to put, we're going to allow more animal units out there. And we, if we don't get rain, what does that do to us from both the financial and ecological standpoint that next year? Well, I, and we've talked about this before. I, I don't think we can view forage production each year is independent from the other because we, you know, we've known for quite some time that if coming out of a drought, your forage production in the following year will be lower. Right. Just even if you hit normal precip levels, it will be lower because it takes some time for those plants to recover. And so one of the things I worry about in a highly variable system is if we're trying to, you know, the good years we take more forage and the bad years we back it off. I'm not sure operationally whether that's really still ecologically a sound decision-making mm. process because it may take two or three years for that for that ground to recover from a severe drought and if you're taking any of that excess forage off what that means is you're not allowing the plant to recover it might be able to sustain itself but it's not recovering so over time what you do is you lose productivity from your from your rangeland over time you're, so you're basically mining your grass at that point you're not allowing it to be the renewable resource that it is and so these are the things that I have often thought about. So is it common, the use it or lose it type mentality, right? If we, because I go back to that thought of extra forage, right? And I think, man, if there's extra, let's use it, right? Because I just don't want to leave it sitting there. I mean, is that, is that common? I, <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to venture on the limb because I think it's highly variable from each producer. Yeah. You know, I've, I've certainly worked with some that, you know, if there's anything left, they want to take it. Um, but I, I don't think you can look at it as wasted forage in a given year because, um, and I've talked about this before, you know, you may leave some forage this year because it was above average year. And next year you might have a really bad year, a really bad drought year. Now all of a sudden that forage you left last year is probably way more valuable to you now in the drought year than it was yeah. a year ago. And so it's it's... As we've talked before, you can't just make decisions in isolation from everything else that's going on because I think you have to consider, um, you know, there was, uh, I've known some good operators that, that would even set aside as much as a third of the ranch on a given, on a year-to-year basis. And they, they either wouldn't graze it or would graze it very lightly. And so some would view that as, well, that's lost opportunity, right? You could have, you know, put more animals on and harvested that. But... Specifically, one operator in Oklahoma during the 2011 drought that was just epic. Guess who had cattle on his place longer than everybody else mm-hmm. in the county? Because he had a third of this forage sitting in reserve that after everything else was gone, because that year we didn't, in that county specifically, they didn't even really get a good green up at all. It, a lot of the grasses never broke dormancy. So he was able to, you know, to to survive a little bit longer than a lot of the other ranches because he had a third of this forage set aside. It's not great forage because it's a year old, right? 
But um, so, so there's the forage. That's what's happening above ground. But I think what we often forget is the below ground is, is almost as important and that you have to have above ground to produce the below ground, which means the roots. So if you're constantly taking that off and not allowing that grass some time to replace the roots, you know, you, you can't just view it as a, it's not like you're just going to your pantry and pulling, you know, it's not like you're just going to the hay shed and pulling a bell of hay out, right? There's, there's consequences downstream from that. Um, and so, again, we've known this since the 50s that this moderate stocking, you know, allowing some of your ranch to produce more forage than you may be able to use buffers you against those bad years. That's the, so that's why we generally advocate for a moderate stocking or a conservative stocking is, you know, you might not be able to make as much money in the good years, but in the bad years, you won't lose as much money. That's, so it's, it's kind of balancing or mitigating. I like your term mitigating the risk there. Well, I think, uh, you know, as you explain that to me, that that's what classifies a resilient operation, right? That we don't make decisions on one year or short term basis. We make decisions on long term. How do we, you know, increase the overall well-being of our herd, the overall well-being of our resources in these multi-year framework versus, you know what, let's let's mine it this year and what happens next year, whatever, right? Uh, but as you build a resilient operation, you know, and I think as you're talking about roots, right? I think about a bad, you know, a, a financial balance sheet, right? You know, I think of the roots as those, the your long-term assets, right? That really are kind of form the foundation of your business and your working capital and some of those liquid stuff or the stuff above. And if we take too much of that, right? Yeah, it's a really good Pretty soon we got to come down to our roots, to our to our long-term assets, and we start pulling those. And that's really when we start getting into issues. And I, it, you know, that's just the way my weird mind works, right? But that's there's a lot of analogies that you could, you know, as we well, form these resilient operations, that our economics or our financial well-being really have a similar type pattern. But I, I think there's correct principles, right? So there's principles that apply because it's the same with a cow, right? So if, if a cow's been forced into a poor body condition, she may be able to milk for a calf, but that means it's coming at a cost to her, right? So yeah. what that means in the given year that, you know, she loses two body condition scores, you might say it's okay because I still weaned a 450-pound calf. But the problem is next year she may not breed. And so, I mean, it's the same principle, right? If, if you take too much of what's available in a given year, right. you hurt the base of your operation, whether you're talking about the animals, the finances, or the rangeland. So I, I think that's the overall principle is making decisions across years, not in given years, right? Yeah, you know, being it's... relatively conservative and making sure you maintain the base of your operation, which is right. your cows, your, your assets and your savings and, you know, your, your grass, the roots. I think, so, yeah, it kind of goes back to, kind of circle back to what we started with was, you know, being able to identify those variables that are going to affect profitability in your operation and managing your operation accordingly. Be fle- flexible when those variables change. You know, we, we, we've talked about all, all these things, the range, the grazing, the market, you know, fire, drought, you know, all these different things. And I think it just kind of boils down to identifying the variables, once again, that you know are going to affect you and managing those long term, being aware how those are going to affect your, your, your operation long term. I think it's a pretty good wrap up point right there. Is that we've, you know, kind of come back full circle in that it's the same management principles, whether we're talking about the animals, 
the economics for the range in that we have to maintain the valuable part of that base and, and control the things we can control, which how much of that are we using in a given year, you know, reducing our or increasing our profit margins by reducing costs, mm-hmm. yep. take care of our animals. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast today. We look forward to visiting with you again.